Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, good evening, welcome to a very special edition of uh, Man on the Post. I'm your host, Chris. Uh, with me this week, uh, I have got, uh, from the Sunday show, I've got Dave, who has sadly let him down on the WhatsApp group today with not being able to use a blind. No, come on, Chris, let's not, let's not start this off on the bad foot. <laughs> I thought you were very brave coming back once you'd figured out how to open it, asking how to close it again. Yeah, I still couldn't figure it out. But then my wife, my wife came in and did it within in sec- seconds, so... Yeah, no more, no more blind chat, please. <laughs> no, that's very fair enough. Uh, and also, we've got um, one of the, oh, in fact, I've got the only member of the Football Fives podcast that still follows me on Twitter. We've got David Hardrick here, um, <laughs> who is here uh, to discuss his new book about Bobby Robson. How are you doing, David? Yeah, not bad at all, mate. Not bad at all. How are you? Grand, thank you very much. Um, what is your book called? Silver Linings. Um, all about specifically Bobby Robson's time in charge of uh, of England and everything that came with it. Okay, so some listeners will uh, know yourself, and some people that follow us on Twitter will know yourself because you. Yeah, I think Football Five sort of is where you sort of do your podcast, but you also do um, quite a lot of England podcasts, don't you? So this is obviously quite a big thing for you. Yeah, me and Chris Nee are um, very big fans of international football, and we started a. Chris started a website called the Styles Council a long time ago, uh, and that Styles is in Nobby Styles. Love that name. Um, and we wanted to do a uh, an England podcast to go along with it. So we don't podcast in between England games. We podcast around England games because we found quite early on it's quite difficult to do an England podcast week in week out because there's just not always England news to talk about. You end up talking about the same things so basically as soon as there's a squad there's a pod yeah <laughs> it's no. basically in a mantra and uh yeah it's international football is quite special to me anyway um but i was sort of fortunate enough to grow up with bobby robson in charge and my first my earliest world cup memories in mexico 86 uh where i didn't really i didn't really get what was going on i just thoroughly enjoyed myself so my first proper world cup sticker albums magazines guides stuff clipped out in the newspapers was italia 90 and i i think of that generation if that's your first world cup then international football is always going to be a bit special to you um so yeah uh, but no we we really like doing the pod lots of people seem to like it we it, it's a very sort of in and out easy pod we try not to make them too long or anything like that so yeah if you're so if you're so prone give it a try yeah no we will so i mean by the sounds that you're very very into the england football team and international football my i don't know about you dave but my sort of attention with the england team is i'm sort of fairly interested in it 
I'm not that bothered about friendlies. Um, in sort of qualifiers and obviously tournaments you sort of watch, but I reckon if I was to give my following of England a rating at probably about sort of six out of ten, what about you? Oh, I'm probably around the eight or nine mark. I mean, uh, I, I love football. I, I, when there's no club football on, I'll find something to watch, believe you me. And, you know, all of a sudden England becomes the centric thing. So, that, you know, there's, there's three England games this time around. I've spoken at length on our pod at the weekend about how I didn't really care about playing San Marino, but you know Albania, an improving nation that qualified a few years ago, uh, and then Poland this week is a, is a fairly big game at international level. So I'm I'm well into it. I um you know I, I I get annoyed at some of the squads that get picked, and I do have an opinion on it. So I'm, I'm uh, yeah I'm, I'm quite heavily invested in it to be honest. But uh, sometimes national breaks come at annoying times, but that's not really its fault. But yeah, that's just where where it sits on the calendar. Um, um... What's your first earliest England memory? Just a shame, mean day. Yeah, yes, I'm slightly younger than you two, but um, so, so I mean, I was born '88, so my first England memories are nearly entirely the Umbro Cup, um, which was oh, wonderful. The, <laughs> the summer before Euro '96, which is a great way to be introduced in national football. Um, but yeah, we, we used to have. We we had Sky like when it was on the dish when we were in like the mid nineties and we, my dad had this contraption which to this day I don't know if it was illegal uh, illegal or not but you could it's like I had a little sort of signal receiver in my room and if it was you know if the stars were aligned right you could pick up the signal from downstairs so I could watch Sky upstairs and they would watch you know terrestrial downstairs and it was just a great arrangement but uh, yeah thankfully things have come on a bit since then. Oh good so that free ten minutes you used to get at eleven o'clock that's um, that was handy for you. Oh no! I mean, I didn't have a remote. I had to be on the right channel down oh, there. Okay. So what, what, whatever it was on was on. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Fair enough. So you're. I mean, the reason I'm asking you on here tonight is because you're a Newcastle fan. So your memories of Bobby Robson are very much sort of as a clubman rather than a, a sort of a manager for his country. Um, yes, but but I, I, you know, I've I've read all the things there is to read about Bobby. It's one of my one of my favourite topics, and uh, I was you know delighted to be asked to, to come on just to even just to listen to what's got to be said. Because I say I, I could talk about Bobby all day, every day. So I'm looking forward to, to hearing uh, hearing David's uh, side of the story. Yeah. Oh no, lovely. So um, he was uh, he was born in a sort of I don't want to get sort of very sort of stereotypical and Billy Elliot, and obviously you're you're from that neck of the woods, David, and you can sort of correct me but he was born in very much sort of like a, a, a mining village was he in the uh, in the northeast um and he had a sort of you know sort of no toilet in his back garden sort of upbringing yeah one of, one of the things to say in the book is that to sort of talk about his upbringing is to lurch into cliche but they were cliches for a reason um and what it instilled in him that, that he grew up in a very very close-knit community and it really instilled in him a sense of people um, and being able to call on people for certain things and being genuinely interested and emotionally invested in people and obviously that is something that never left him throughout his career and it became, you know, it was the, the thing that Mourinho and Pep say he taught them was to, to actually be invested in people and his upbringing, the the thing was he was a really talented sportsman he was a very very good cricketer but always had a ball at his feet and um he was he was basically destined for a life in football um not, there was nothing else that was ever going to come close really and sort of typically he he went to Fulham as an apprentice because the clubs around him and various others all were offering him apprentice forms 
but Fulham went one step further and they sent the manager up to actually meet with him and he sat in his front room with his mum and dad and he talked to him about moving to London and what it would mean etc and because they went further because they actually reached out that was then the only place he wanted to go and that really is a product of of that upbringing but yeah I know what you're saying about the Billy Elliot thing and everything but as I said sometimes cliches are cliches for a reason and it is almost impossible to talk about that period of his life without lurching into that yeah and I guess um at the time of when he was sort of signing for Fulham moving to London from a small village in the northeast is a little bit different doing it then than it is doing it now so it was a sort of very brave step for him to take I guess wasn't it yeah it was it was huge um but he was always very very confident that <laughs> there really was nothing else he was ever going to do um he did briefly go down the mines um his his father was his worth ethic was just ridiculous i think he had one day off sick in his entire working life um and bobby really was sort of interested in the the job of work he he wanted to work he enjoyed the work that's what got him through the sort of very worst periods of his life going forward was was always being able to throw himself into the work and he, he went down to Fulham because they reached out and because they offered him the human touch but also because I think partly because it was the biggest challenge um, and he, he really wanted to take the biggest challenge going it would be quite easy for him to have, have become a, a Newcastle, Sunderland or Middlesbrough player and stayed in his comfort zone but that's not really what he was sort of ever destined to do and destiny plays a big part in his life as as we'll probably get on to as we go through but being in that London bubble at that time put him in in front of the eyes of people at the FA who were not prone to coming and watching matches in the North much at that point in time it gave him an opportunity at a club where he could learn an awful lot about the coaching side of the game from from really early on it put him in the shop window for a move to West Brom, which got him England caps and various other things. So, yeah, it, it was it was a big step, but he was absolutely vindicated in doing it. Did he regret never playing for Newcastle? No, no, because he he really loved his time with Fulham. Um, it ended in in sort of very deep acrimony. He he took over as manager and ended up getting summarily sacked because he couldn't save them from an impossible relegation basically and he he only found out he was sacked by walking by a newspaper <laughs> newspaper stand <laughs> on the way home um but he when he was at Fulham the first time he he left to go to West Brom because he had a slight falling out with a few people there who uh well not a falling out but he he wanted to take a bigger challenge and he went to West Brom who were a bigger side at the time um, he was playing with Don Howe, who that became one of his life's great friendships, and he got into that England side, and that was everything to him. You know, that was everything he wanted. Him and Don Howe were were given were were taken under Walter Winterbottom's wing a little bit, who was national director of coaching and England manager, and they were they were given sort of their very first steps into potential coaching and managerial careers ahead of them and then he got to go back to Fulham and he thoroughly enjoyed his time there till the end um so I I don't think he I don't think he ever yearned to play for Newcastle because 
he never really needed to but there was a sense of unfinished business about him wanting to go back as manager um there was a, a sense of it was not just about going back and being newcastle united's manager it was about going back to the area because I don't know if you know the full story, but obviously there was. Do you know about him dropping Kevin Keegan from his first squad? Yes. Yeah. Um, so he he left out two England captains in his first England squad, Mick Mills and Kevin Keegan. And Mick Mills, it would be fair to say, took it rather better than <laughs> Keegan did. Who uh, he was? He just transferred to the Sun from the Mirror. He was. He had a ghost-written column, and he immediately said he'd never play for England again and it was it all got a bit silly because because Robson very uncharacteristically admitted that he should have phoned him and told him the news personally and that was a very uncharacteristic thing for him not to have done but Keegan's reaction was just like massively petulant but Keegan had just gone back to Newcastle we were in the second division at the time as I'm sure you know Dave Mm -hmm. and he was I mean, it was it was an unbelievable signing for them, wasn't it? He he really was like god tier, wasn't he? He was. No, he really had no no right to be playing at that uh, in that team. At, uh, certainly at the level they were at, at the time. And he um, Robson left him out, and he went back up to to watch a Newcastle game and try and keep an eye on Keegan, even though he'd said he'd never play again. And he got booed and he got spat at by Newcastle fans. And it was, it was pretty grim. It was pretty grim. So there was a, there was a sense for him of going back and writing that wrong as a manager, I think in the end. Which is, I, I, I didn't know that until today when I did, did some research on him about the fact he did drop Keegan for his first um, yeah. his first squad and like we were sort of saying I think pre-record like you know, I'd always got this image of him being some sort of jocular uh, sort of avuncular uncle or something but that's quite a ruthless streak isn't it yeah he the, the book the one thing I would say about the book is the book is not a hagiography he he did have a side to him that he could turn um, he was he could certainly be spiky when he needed to be spiky um, and he did make big decisions and he had a bit of the devil about him as well because the, the like this sort of avuncular image the first squad he drops two England captains and that was massive at the time because if you were a former England captain that sort of almost guaranteed you did things on your own terms and Keegan had been captain. Mick Mills had had to take over for the 1982 World Cup because of Keegan's injury. So he was literally dropping the two incumbents of the armband, which is quite extraordinary. And then in his next squad, um, they there was a lot of stuff of, of racist abuse of players, particularly the under-21s went and played a, a friendly in um, Denmark. And they had four black players in the side who were roundly booed by their own fans. And England fans were actually cheering every time a white player got on the ball. So Bobby Robson's next squad, he picked six black players. First time anybody had ever done it. And he knew exactly what the reaction would be. And he didn't care. And he went out to the press and said, you need to understand if the 11 best English footballers were black that would be my football team. So if you don't like it, lump it. So he was no soft touch. You know, he really was no soft touch. And 
I think the I think that sort of that ideal of him comes from because he did care about people. So when you see the interviews, when you read about, you know, the stuff around Gaza and various other people, when you hear people talk about Bobby Robson, they always say the same things. And that's because he did care, but he cared enough to stand up to people when they needed it too. Does that ring familiar with anything that he did at Newcastle, Dave? Um, I mean, it was a very different time by by the time he was he was, uh, he was up here as manager. But um, he um, he had a he had a spiky side, and as you say, he, um, he wasn't afraid to make make the big decisions if he needed to. Um, I don't think you last as a manager as long as he did without having that streak in you anyway. Um, so it's you know it's one thing being being playful in front of the cameras, whatever else you want to say. But I think when you know when the when the going got, got tough, he was he wasn't afraid to dish it out. I mean, you can ask probably Jermaine Janus after he chipped a penalty over the bar in a friendly. <laughs> yeah. The, treat, the treatment he got, um, which was you know 100% deserved. But that you know. I what think, happened to him after that then? He just got bollocked. <laughs> oh, okay. So he didn't get dropped or. <laughs> Um, well, I think there's a there's an image of him sat sort of left behind in the dugout while Bobby's t- seeing the rest of the team, and James was left on the sort of the naughty step, if you like. Um, I can't remember the exact words that were used, but uh, I don't think Bobby was particularly impressed with. I don't know if you remember the penalty, but it was a it was it yeah. was a pathetic Penenka attempt um, that sailed well over the crossbar uh, in a friendly against Chelsea out in. I want to say Bangkok. It was somewhere hot anyway. Mm. Um, so the players had obviously put in. I think it was probably 120 minutes for a nil-nil draw, and they went to pens. And Janus just did this horrendous penalty, <laughs> uh, and, and Bobby was not pleased to say the least. No, I just, you know I remember him um, losing his rag a little bit with Nasser Hussain on TV once because Nasser Hussain was talking about the fact that sometimes you can't tell if you've hit the ball when uh, it's about sort of cricketers not walking. Uh, when they're giving out, and he's and that's the same. To, well, sometimes you just don't know. Uh, and um, and Bobby Robson was absolutely adamant that if you've hit the ball, you know whether to walk or not. Um, and it was sort of, it was a little bit sort of throwback to sort of old school values, as it were. Yeah, he 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 did have a lot of that in him, and which makes it ironic that he suffered probably the the worst piece of cheating. <laughs> or in football history or the most infamous piece of, of cheating in football history and he he was I think listen he wasn't exactly Mourinho he wasn't going in there throwing his weight around the dressing room but even when he was at Barcelona if you read around that time he would dig his heels in if he felt he needed to and mm. the time was right and it's part and parcel of being a good manager in my humble opinion it's it's about it's about knowing when to do it isn't it, it, it and it's certainly the one thing that was old school about him is he was very this doesn't leave the dressing room so he he would carpet players for their performance after the game and then go out and do a press conference where they he said they they thought they played absolutely fine you know he was I think that's why the players loved him because they they knew that they knew where the boundaries were, but they also knew he wasn't going to go out there and chuck, you know, chuck them under the bus. Yeah. A la Mourinho, a la Lampard. <laughs> um, so he uh, after managing Fulham, he um, he managed Ipswich, where he won the FA Cup and UEFA Cup, and then England offered him the chance to be the manager, and I think Ipswich offered him some sort of ten-year contract or something to stay. Uh, then he dropped Keegan. Um, 
but he didn't qualify for the Euros in 1984, did he? And he offered to resign, uh, but I think I don't think the FA wanted Brian Clough to take over, so they sort of refused uh, refused the chance of, of of him resigning, which seems sort of in retrospect some sort of sliding doors moment for both Clough and for um, well, Robson. Yes, yes, and no. I think he came into the England job. He'd basically been anointed um, years before. I mean, even even as far back as as I forget which World Cup it was. It may have be if i can't remember which world cup it was but effectively he was there as a player um but the england coaching team were using him to scout opponents because he had such a good football brain and the fa had all i mean the fa had always turned to him for various jobs so there was there was a trial program for young players and you know, one of the people they selected to help run it and help select the best players from that programme was Bobby Robson. And one of the players was a, a, a young lad who was signed on at West Ham, a winger, called Harry Redknapp. And Bobby Robson said, yeah, good player, and, and made sure he got a contract. So he was always in the FAs thinking, and they, when Ron Greenwood came in, the first thing Ron Greenwood wanted to do was re-establish a B team. Um, because there were the youth international football was very much in its infancy, and he he really believed in the value of a B team, but it had to be, it wasn't the sort of slightly jokey um, thing it became in the nineties. It was quite a serious business. So you had Howe and Robson who were managers of the B team, and it was it really was a place that was seen as. Uh, you know, a trial to see if you were ready to step up. So Glenn Hoddle played a couple of B internationals, and he he played brilliantly against New Zealand and scored a wonderful goal. And a month later, he was in the England side for his debut. So Robson had always been trusted with with all of these things. And then when Greenwood announced he was going, there really was only one choice to take over. And Robson took it with gusto. He had a rough time, to say the least, from the start because the press wanted Brian Clough not the FA the press and were the FA scared of Clough yes yeah um and there was one or two people within the organization who had had several run-ins with Brian Clough and so you had a mix of people who were scared of him and other people who just hated him so he had absolutely no chance and in 84 when they didn't qualify for the Euros and there are a lot of reasons they didn't qualify for the Euros and very few of them fall on Bobby Robson's head but he really got the home game against Denmark wrong he he picked the wrong he set up wrong, he picked the wrong side and he made far too much of them in the press before you know, saying how brilliant they were and how difficult it would be etc and he thought that might offer him a layer of protection when all it really did was gave the press something to say, well, why were you bigging them up so much? Why weren't you talking about us? So he offered that resignation, but it was never going to be accepted because they never wanted Brian Clough. And the, the other candidates at the time were either not ready or the FA just didn't rate them. But the press campaign had started at that point because there was a game against Wales in 84 where there's some where they're handing out the Robson out Clough in badges before the game. Were they? Yeah, and... This this pushed it too far for quite a few people. Um, one Graham Taylor actually was gave an interview on TV saying how disgraceful it was, and 
the the sort of footballers in the media, so the ghost written columns and the punditry on TV, actually rounded on the press at that point and said, "No, this is this is ridiculous. You've gone too far." Little did they know where they'd be in four years' time. <laughs> um, but the FA were never going to accept that because the biggest single problem Bobby Robson had was that the players weren't good enough. That 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 generation of players, that early generation of players, that. A, he was trying to bring into the sides who were not quite ready. So who would these players have been? Well, you've got, like, John Barnes scores the goal in 1984 against Brazil, but then he was very much in and out of the side for the next couple of years because he was very, very raw, really raw. Um, And he was still, Robson was still experimenting with his side. He was still dealing with one or two of sort of old heads that, needed to be phased out people like sort of phil neal had played a role and he was bringing in players like kenny sampson who were again young raw that he believed were the future but it you just have to you know it's exactly football's exactly the same now young players you can't just expect them to be absolutely brilliant from the off but the other side of it was the striking options were awful so they they went on a south american tour where Barnes scored that goal and Clive Ellen put in, well, I think over the three games, I think he played something like 120 minutes of football, and it was absolutely wretched. And you had people like Paul Mariner, who were very good, hard-working strikers, but that was about it. Um, Tony Woodcock, who was really great on his day, but he was not a... What Robson needed more than anything else was to find a Gary Lineker. And mm. fortunately... He had Gary Lineker. <laughs> so the real turning point comes really when Lineker sort of gets into that side in 85, 86, and then things start to change as you get to the 86 World Cup and you get the likes of Beardsley being bought into the squad and Peter Reid finally getting a cap at Grand Ole. I think he was about 28 when he got his first cap, but it gave him a sort of Nobby Styles-ish figure in midfield and... And things started to change relatively, relatively quickly then. Yeah, because they got to the World Cup in '86, and um, like you said, this is like the first World Cup we both remember. So I kind of vaguely remember them struggling for the first two games. Uh, so they lost to Portugal and drew in Morocco. The first, I think, the first England game I probably remember is the um, the Poland game where Garlinka scores his hat trick. So after the first two games, were the knives out for him? again or yeah 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 very much so very very much so they the pro the first game everything went wrong in the they it was a really rainy day in in monterey which was great and they were really excited to get to the ground because they thought right the heat's not going to be stifling we can really get into this game because the heat was just crazy absolutely crazy mm. Literally, as the coach pulled up, the cloud cover broke, and it became, in the space of an hour, like one of just the temperature was just insane. And because it had rained, the humidity was up, and they just wilted. Basically, they just wilted. The goal that was scored against them is quite comical looking back, because you've just got you've got three defenders who are all looking at each other, going, "I can't be bothered." <laughs> Just they just had nothing left in the tank. I think that was the game that afterwards Peter Shilton was picked for drug testing 
and they had to wait an hour and a half because he was drinking and drinking and drinking, but he was so dehydrated through the because of the game and the heat, he just couldn't produce anything. And he's just the goalkeeper. Um, yeah, and that's the keeper. So they then adjusted slightly for the next game, and it went. I mean, it went even worse. And England were rotten in that game, and Ray Wilkins gets sent off, and they really had to turn it round. And there's in Terry Fenwick's autobiography, he's got. He says he had this big. I am Spartacus moment and called a team meeting. So it's wrong. There was the meeting took place, but it was. You read various accounts of it and what happened, but they basically had a Robson called them together and basically had a clear the air meeting and said, right, you you've got an hour. I want you to get everything off your chest. And what Robson was really really good at was knowing how he was going to fix a problem and what he wanted to do but making it feel like it was your idea. Mm. So he let he, he had already decided what he was going to do and how he was going to change it, but he let them have a run and a rave. And they went into the next game and they got the goal early, which made a massive difference. And Lineker was, was sharp and on form. And, yeah, they, they got through. And the change round was just immediate, you know, the sort of... The, the mood in the camp and everything all these sort of unquantifiable things that you hear people talk about just literally changed in the course of 90 minutes and they were just on the quest you know absolute crest of a wave at that point and then it was the it's the Paraguay game next isn't it yeah did he drop Hately for Beardsley as well yeah yeah well Beardsley was sensational and Lineker and Beardsley just clicked immediately and the next game um Paraguay were just, I mean, they were absolutely brutal. Uh, Beardsley's goal, his first England goal, comes when Gary Lineker's off the pitch because off the ball, one of the Paraguayan defenders just essentially elbows him clean in the throat and he couldn't breathe. I mean, they were really worried about him at one point. Ends up coming back on and scores the third. Um, <laughs> but again, they'd managed to turn things round in the last group game and then the first knockout game they'd got through a different type of game. You know, they got through a, a real proper battle, a real night, you know, real knives drawn gunfight. So yeah. yeah, it was, it was going into that Argentina game. Everything felt like it could be going England's way. Yeah. And, and we get to the course, quarterfinals, don't we? Of course. <laughs> they come up against the greatest player who's ever played football. Diego um, Maradona. I want to ask you about this, yeah, because um, I'll ask both of you about this because I'm wondering if the pair of you have contrasting fortunes, so or contrasting views. Sorry, um, I remember this game. Obviously, you do, uh, David, as well. Um, I remember for a long time afterwards, really, really, really not liking Maradona just because of the hand of God, um, and it's like the line in The Simpsons where Lisa was sort of ranting about some cause or something that she was into that episode. Uh, and Homer said, don't release it. I used to believe in things too. Um, <laughs> and when I was young, I used to, I, I, you, sort of, you sort of felt blatantly cheated and I just sort of dis disliked it for a long time afterwards. And it was only towards maybe the sort of end of his career, maybe even when it was as late as managing Argentina in 2010, I sort of started to, to sort of warm to him because, you know, you're sort of old with kids and you don't sort of feel the need to be so angry anymore. Um, David, is that sort of the same for you? And Dave, because you're a bit different, do you not get that sort of anger towards Maradona that maybe your older fans have? 
I, I'm really interested in Dave's view on this before I offer mine. <laughs> um, I can't stand them. Um, and uh, as, as you say, I, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't live through this, but I am the biggest stickler for rules and anyone who, you know, actively breaks them and then is happy about it. I just think, I, you know, it really, really riles me up. Um, so I've never, I've never liked him. I've never fawned over him as the greatest footballer of all time because to me, he has blighted his entire legacy by, by cheating quite blatantly. Um, and I think I think Bobby put it as we were beaten by the hand of a rascal. Yeah. Which is a very, a very polite way of putting it. That was um, fabulous. <laughs> but, I, I, mean, I mean, let's be honest, I also blame Peter Shilton very slightly for being outjumped by a five foot six man, but um, that's probably an argument for another day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the thing... I I love Maradona. I think he's the greatest player who's ever played football. I think you're um, right with that as well. Yeah. Uh, even during the I, times I didn't like him, I still thought that as well. I think you. It's impossible for me to make a sort of uh, an argument in like just a couple of minutes as to why. But I think if you if you look into his if you look into his history, certainly there are a lot of reasons why he was as he was in early life, middle life, and later life. And there are a lot of reasons why he punched that ball into the net. I think you, I go into into it in much more detail in the book. But I think if you ha, if you look at the Argentinian feeling towards England because of the Falklands, and the build up to that game, and how much animosity there was, um, it it really it's it's not surprising that they were so desperate to win. And I think when you have uh, the only way to describe England to Argentina at the time was an enemy. I think when you have an enemy and you get one over on them to that degree. So let's be honest, the fact that he's punched the ball into the net with his hand is even better for them. That could not have worked out better. (laughs) You know, so the, the thing is, he said it was the hand of God, but I... The the goal he scores after that is genuinely touched by God. Well, so you you have to say, yeah, it was the hand of a rascal, etc., etc. But the talent of the man was just off the charts. Tim, on, on that, uh, on. On, sorry, Chris, on that second goal, obviously the, it is a brilliant goal, but I just kind of believe Peter Reid doesn't half him. Like, what, what, I've seen it so many times, and every time I stick a stick foot, I would think, why wouldn't you just take him down? Like, well, it, Peter Reid's been asked that question himself, and he says the simple truth was he just didn't think he could get there. He thought if he lunges in here, he's gonna be he's gonna be gone. And Terry Fennick had got a um, had got a yellow card earlier in the game and was worried about just wiping him out. Mm. Terry Butcher couldn't get there. He was just just physically couldn't get there because of the way Maradona was dribbling the ball and they played a they played a friendly against England in 1981 and Maradona goes on an absolutely brilliant dribble quite similar and he tries to take it he tries to uh, bend it round Shilton and he just misses the target and that was in his mind so he set up to place it into the same spot across Shilton and actually just took the t- touch to roll it past him and take him out of the game mm. and it, the thing about that goal they're just when, 
when you watch that goal, you think, yeah, well, that's an absolutely brilliant goal. But when you look at the circumstances around that game and the pressure that was involved and the stuff in the crowd and everything else, it was, yeah, it was it, just an incredible sporting moment. Um, have you, any of you heard Tim Vickery talking about this match? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you might sort of know this a little bit then. So what he talks about, he talks about the fact the um, the colonial legacy of uh, Britain and Argentina or England and, and Argentina, how it was a sort of quasi colony of the sort of nineteenth century, um, and there was always this sort of inferiority complex and superiority complex in that relationship between both countries, um, and then of course you had the Falklands afterwards um, and of course you had the big build up to this game because of the Falklands but also because of this colonial past as well uh, and with Maradona when he scores the first goal that's great for Argentina because that's him saying to the old colonial masters we're cleverer than you and with the second goal when he takes it by all the England players and scores he says not only are we cleverer than you we're better than you as well um, that's why it <laughs> meant so much for, for Argentina um, with regards to the I second I think the other thing around that game is I think you've got to look at where England was at the time as well. And I think although although the Falklands didn't loom as large in, say, our immediate history as, as it did in Argentina's, England had just been through 1985. And 1985 for English football was an absolute nadir. You've got the it starts the year with riots uh, there was a there was a darlington i think it was no middlesbrough game up your end of uh dave um where the police are on the pitch you have the millwall luton oh riot, yes which that was good show, wasn't disgrace. it yeah you have, <laughs> have you ever uh, seen that sorry have you ever seen that dave yeah i have yes yeah. <laughs> um then you have you get into march uh you get into may and it's it's absolutely stunning in 1985 because you have Ian Hambridge killed at the the Birmingham versus uh, Leeds United riots on the same day as basically Birmingham becomes a, like literally a war zone. Um, you have the Bradford fire, um, which goes to show the problems with not just the crowds but with the stadiums. A couple of weeks after that, you have Heysel. It's English football really was sort of spiralling and. 85-86 that season had been about trying to get the fans back in check building up to the World Cup identity cards Ken Bates wanting to put his electric fence up at Stamford Bridge and then uh, going to every newspaper in the country outraged because the police hadn't let him turn it on um, it, it really was English football was, was just in a terrible place and this World Cup became a little bit of a beacon of hope because England's fans were pretty well behaved and then they get they draw they're drawn against Argentina and fate puts them against Argentina and the whole game was like a powder keg it really really was like a powder keg and the fact that Mar Maradona scores that goal and the fact that Argentina win on the day and the fact there wasn't just the worst right you've ever seen in your life afterwards <laughs> is actually pretty miraculous if truth be told <laughs> with that turns into a maradona podcast um dave it's the fact that he scored that second goal doesn't outweigh the fact he scored that first goal for you it's still a rotten stinky cheat yeah he's still a cheat yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get do. that well i mean the only way i can uh, similar to you really is by the time he became the manager in uh what was it 20 
probably 2009, 2010, whenever yeah. it was he took the job. You quite liked him by then because he was this character who was, well, wild pretty much. Um, and it's kind of long forgotten about what he'd done as a player. But to bring it back to how me, me and David spent a lot of time con- conversing, which is about snooker, like if you look at Stephen Henry, I hated his guts in the 90s, but now he's back as an underdog. I like him again. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's just maybe the way I'm wired up is that I always root for the underdog. <laughs> is that how I, you would have felt about Steve Davis as well? Well, funnily enough, my dad is the same about Steve Davis because um, he hated him in the 80s. Um, but in the in like the late 90s, early 2000s, when he was this sort of 46-year-old, 47-year-old reaching quarterfinals and things, I was loving it. And my dad, <laughs> dad was like, I, I would have hated this 10 years ago. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely no surprise to me that you're drawn to snooker because I don't know if you watch much snooker, Chris, but yeah. it, it is genuinely the single most sporting sport in the world you know players call their own fouls and if anything happens that's even slightly untoward you wouldn't believe the furore around the the smallest slightest thing so yes yeah, so it's no surprise to me that you're drawn to a bit of yeah. <laughs> if i just tell you that other than football my uh the sport i like watching the most is cycling in particular the tour de france that probably gives you a sort of fair mm-hmm. idea what i feel mm-hmm. about cheating and <laughs> yeah Probably sort of coming at it from a different sort of viewpoint from there. <laughs> well, Maradona did a bit of that as well, didn't oh, he? Oh, he did, so. yeah. Didn't he ever? Um, okay, so I guess the way that England went into the tournament with... Um, and sort of played those first two games and was so under pressure, Robson was so under pressure compared to the way they left, the sort of injustice of it all. And um, he was in a sort of a, kind of a win-win situation there, wasn't he, at that point? Yeah, Um there were there were one or two legitimate questions asked, um, and there were there were journalists who had sort of there were a lot of minds that were already made up, and it it, it was slightly inconvenient that England actually left on a bit of a wave rather than a, a you know spiraling through the air, mm. and there was there were a few weird things like you know like Brian Glanville's obsession with Terry Butcher and saying how bad he was and he shouldn't be in the team and various other things it it was a strange it was a strange moment but what they had ahead of him was like a relatively easy group and a european championships which england get through the group and they're going in as favorites like they're going in as genuine favorites we dropped one point in qualifying didn't we you what so sorry we dropped one point in qualifying didn't we for the years yeah because we were we were good <laughs> you know there's no other way to describe it we we were really good and robson had his spine at that point and he had you know he bought in players like waddle um to to sort of supplement it and it had the genesis of that italia 90 team at that point and you know lineker was the fulcrum he was the goal scorer brian robson was immense um i think we have a slightly skewed opinion of Brian Robson of just he was this sort of injury uh, ravaged plodding midfielder he he was I mean I, there for a couple of years there I would say he was probably the best in his position in world football he, he yeah. was that good I think it's um, difficult as well isn't it with the European band to compare him to other players at that time yeah that's precisely it the, the European band was something that Robson himself thought really held his team back he he felt that without the european band they probably would have won italia 90 okay now 
that's a different conversation and we might touch on it a bit but I'm not I'm not totally sure that's the case if I'm honest but they certainly go into Euro 88 as, as genuine favourites so what went wrong then and was it Robson's fault it was a whole myriad of things really I think the the first thing he you would say he did wrong is he stuck by a couple of people who were waning at that point um Hoddle was was up waning. Samson was, I mean, he was still reliable, but he was anybody with even a modicum of pace was burning by him. Was it his error that led to the Ray Houghton goal? Well, the Ray Houghton goal is a is a proper curate's egg of a goal because the entirety <laughs> of the back four makes an individual mistake. <laughs> so it, it's Samson gets the headlines because it's his slice clearance. But if you go back and watch it, every single one of them makes a mistake. But they lost Terry Butcher to a broken leg before the tournament. And Butcher was just so integral to how that team defended. And that left him with Adams and Mark Wright, who are both extraordinarily young and shouldn't have been played together in truth. Hmm. You had Lineker, who was, who was really very, very ill. Very, very ill. And he didn't know it at the time, but he was struggling for tiredness. And it was that bad that he asked not to play in the final game because he was literally struggling out to bed, uh, to get out of bed. And Robson, <laughs> Robson basically forced him to because he said, if you don't play, it's setting an example to others. Now, a, a week later, when Lineker was in hospital, Robson made a point of going and he apologised profusely and he, he felt guilty about that the rest of his career. But you had Chris Waddle, who was one of England's major creative talents, who had had a hernia in the season and he'd not looked after himself, uh, <laughs> to say the least, when he was coming back from that. Like Two days after the operation, he was in a, a room with another footballer, a young footballer, a non-league footballer, I think, that somehow they knew each other. And they just by luck, they'd ended up in the hospital room together. Two days after a hernia, could barely walk. And they were in London, in central London. They were two streets away from Madame Dussault's. So they decided to sneak out of the hospital, still in hospital gowns, etc., and go for a wander around Madame Two Swords. And they <laughs> both nearly collapsed. Um, and then it, there's all all these various factors just built up to just a sort of crushing disappointment. You had Barnes and Beardsley, who were the other two, who really, really underperformed. And that was because they were coming off the back of an absolutely epic season. Um, with Liverpool, you know, where they'd both, essentially, I think they'd both missed about 120 minutes of football over the season or something, mm. and it just been, I mean, that's that's one of the great Liverpool sides, I think, isn't it as well that that era. So, yeah. yeah, it was it was a whole number of things, and he got his tactics wrong in the first game, Robson, as well, because he made Ireland just. All that all Ireland knew they had to do was basically stop the wingers and drop deep and give the England no space. So what you would call that in modern parlance is they just played a low block and England couldn't break it down. Then they come up against a generational Holland side who were were utterly brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I mean Van Basten and Hullet just two absolute footballing superstars at the peak of their power. 
and then they play a game against Russia which nobody wants to be there and Hoddle makes a mistake in the first 10 minutes and it's 1-0 and they just they they would rather have been anywhere but in that stadium playing that game of football but when he comes home the the press coverage is just all of those things some of which were known as some of which weren't all went to one side and it was all about Robson mm. and yeah the 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 level of press attention was just insane and it, it football was front page at this time as well remember because you had the riots in Stuttgart and England fans had been dreadful across Euro 88 they they really really had and yeah it was England was Engl- the England international side was how you sold newspapers basically was this the time you of just- the Thatcher identity cards as well yeah, well, that had been that had been rumbling on for a while. There was all sorts, there was all sorts of stuff going on, but the England fans were just out of control. Mm. They they really were out of control. You know, uh, you can defend a lot of stuff around the England fans as you go through the years, because by the over the next couple of years, it becomes very very clear that they're just getting blamed for everything. And while there is trouble and there is violence it's not on the scale as is being described to readers at home in the newspapers but that was because as i said it sold newspapers did there robson try and sorry i keep interrupting you sorry <laughs> no but I, you know there was there's a reason in 1989 that the sun go with the headline they do after hillsborough yeah. and that's because blaming football fans sells newspapers yeah. that's that's how it was and that had come from the, this this Euro eighty eight and and England fans disgraceful behaviour. Yeah. No, sorry. I was going to ask what. Um, obviously, I'm sure he thought it was a pretty atrocious thing, the the fan behaviour. But did Robson get involved with trying to sort of talk about that or mitigate that or um, yeah, anything he, like that? He was he was forever apologising and pleading and trying to talk to the fan base direct. But it was just an in, impossible job to mm. be. Frank, it was the English psyche at the time. I, without going too deep, I always, I always talk about this, this, these England sides in eras. And if you look relative to the manager, they often reflect England itself. So, Alf Ramsey's England, for instance, was was it, that was a side built on industry and hard work and knuckling down and doing what needs to be done. And then when the 70s come and you need a bit of style to go with all of that substance, it just doesn't happen. And then you get Don Revy, who, again, struggles to, to integrate any sort of style or get some flair into the team because it's just not a world he's familiar with. Robson's England was so up and down and so tumultuous at times. And this this his teams could be anybody in the world on their day but they could also lose to anybody in the world and you have to understand that england at the time was just a a fairly tumultuous place to say the least you know decade starts with the minor strikes and everything that went on around that it ends with the poll tax riots you've got ira bombings you've got the persistent football violence it was it was a very difficult landscape to be the England manager in when all you can really do is apologise. And to be perfectly frank with you, the FA were not good at dealing with it either. The FA were never really got a grip of the situation and 
in my opinion, never really wanted to because I think they felt that the minute they really get involved that they become culpable and responsible. And who wants to be responsible for for that? No, fair enough. Uh, so then we get to Italian 90, uh, which England qualify for without conceding a goal. Uh, my favourite thing about this is Steve Ball getting picked as a third division player. Steve Ball is one of my favourite players of all time. Um, we do a thing on this podcast, I don't know, you, you, you might have heard it, Pieces of Me, where you choose your favourite 11 players uh, on the proviso that they're retired. And I picked Steve Bull in mind because he's just fabulous. So you imagine um, Will Grigg getting picked for the England team, Dave? <laughs> yeah. Well, this, this is it. Like, the thing is, Dave, do you, do you know how good Bully was in those couple of seasons in the lower leagues before he got picked? Um, I've heard about it because I have a Wolves supporting friend who loves Steve Ball, and it's not Chris. Um, <laughs> but so, so I'm aware of how good he was. Um, but it is still a surprise to this day that he, to me, that a you know a player who wasn't in the top flight got in the England squad. But I mean, I suppose Paul Merson went the '98 World Cup from, from the second tier, so it's probably not that unlikely. But no, um, but he like he's he's getting picked off the back of a. 58 goal season that he followed up with a 55 goal season it's it's insane i mean he's it, worth saying he then goes and gets 48 goals uh no so 52 goals in a 50 goal season and he then follows that up by getting 20 goals in his next three seasons 20 goals plus he was just for a moment there he was just a machine steve ball he really was it was it was unbelievable and he just and, never fancied leaving wolves did he no, well, he'd come from West Brom and he felt quite bitter about the way he'd been treated there and he came to a club who loved him mm. and he just couldn't stop scoring. I mean, why would you? But Robson was looking at him because he got... He was frustrated at the lack of backup for Gary Lineker, so he looked at um, John Fashionu in the the final Rouse Cup. Um, actually, the, the, the England-Scotland game literally took place the Saturday after the Friday night of the... Uh, Liverpool nil Arsenal 2 game and he looked at Fashionu he looked at Tony Cotty and just like nah they're, they're just not good enough so it was time to look at Bully and of course he calls him up and he scores a he scores brilliant goal against Scotland and yeah you know he, he looked he just was not phased at all he, he's the most unfootballer like looking footballer you've ever seen in your life but he was just he really was just an android sent absolutely. from the future to score goals absolutely love Steve Book so he, um, uh, I think when um, ITV lost the contract for the first Premier League season to Sky they started showing games from the Midlands um, sort of lower division games from the Midlands and Steve Ball would be on the telly most weeks it was just a phenomenal player I love the fact that he used to spend most of the games against Leicester fighting Steve Walsh as well. I think they both got sent off against each other sort of three or four times. It was just fabulous, Steve Ball was. Um, yeah. Anyway. But the, the, the other thing was that he was... Robson at the time, his, his relationship with the press had deteriorated to the point where he, he was... He was he had sort of decided he was going to make his decisions and he didn't care what anybody thought of him. And there was actually a bit of a sort of backlash to him picking Bull at first, a bit of a very sort of sniffy outrage to it. And part of me thinks he probably wanted that um, because the, there was a game in at the end of 1988, England, basically the FA were offered a 
too much money to go and play a, a friendly against Saudi Arabia. And it was an absolute nothing game. Nobody wanted to go. I, I, Nottingham Forest pulled all their players out. I think Arsenal pulled all their players out. And England go, and it's just awful. It was a 1-1 draw. And the press coverage, the reaction to it was, you can't even... I mean, it's difficult to say to somebody now who we know how despicable our media can be, but you had, for instance, like their son running a four-page Robson Out special where they've got loads of people just saying he's rubbish and he needs to go. They've got Bernard Manning and Stan Boardman's ten favourite Bobby Robson jokes. Um, <laughs> it's just the extraordinary. And you've got, of course, you've got the mirror with their In the Name of Allah, Please Go back page, which is, is quite incredible really looking at it now and looking at it then um and robson really had lost it at this point because the following year all the stuff comes out about his mistress and there's another woman who is alleging she's had an affair with him and his his, this was this he's he's playing away yeah oh yeah he was he was knowing angel he had to admit to a discretion with uh, with a woman, um, Lady Elsie stood by him, but there was another woman who uh, basically completely fabricated the story in league with the Mirror. That she she said she claimed she was going to write a salacious tell-all book, and you'll be unsurprised to know that the book is has never appeared at any <laughs> point. Um, her husband claimed she'd kept a diary of it all and sex on Robson's desk and all this sort of stuff. And the thing was, there was a germ of a story that was true and that really affected his family life, as you would expect. But then it was blown up into this other thing as well. Mm. And then when you get to 1990, all of that gets brought back up again just before they're going out to the World Cup because that it's at that point that the woman who basically made everything up then goes back to the mirror because obviously she wants another few thousand quid with a load more salacious details which again were just a complete fabrication and you've got all of that building then you've got the fact that he's leaving and the news is slowly leaking out because people in the FA let's be honest they couldn't hold water so (laughs) that was all dribbling out and he has to eventually they have to make a statement and they fly out to 1990 but on the day they're flying out he has to give a press conference and the press conference is extraordinary absolutely extraordinary because he marches in there Robson is absolutely furious because there's just been a load of lies about this mistress there's been a load of lies about his resignation saying that he essentially threw his resignation in few people's faces and said he was going straight away that he handed over a brown envelope with his, his resignation letter in it and all this sort of stuff. And it's just all lies to the point where in the conference he says, like, if anyone can produce this resignation letter, I'll donate a million pounds to charity. Because <laughs> he'd never actually written it. He'd just come to a formal agreement with PSV and the FA were happy to cancel his contract on conclusion of the World Cup. And this press conference, you know, everybody's scrambling in. He calls the press hooligans, which is a massively loaded term at that, that point in time. Mm. And he stomps off to the World Cup a pretty unhappy man. And you can imagine what 
the press coverage was like. It was just he, he I, it's it's going back and doing the research for this and reading a lot of that stuff was pretty extraordinary. Yeah, you're, you're thinking. I know times were different, but I genuinely don't know how they got away with this. Um, I'd say their mood wouldn't have been helped by the fact that we were in the sort of Group F, Group of Death, weren't we? With sort of Ireland, Holland and Egypt. And those first two games against Holland and Ireland, they were terrible games, weren't they? They were awful. Matt, ooh, I disagree there. Oh, I disagree there. I think the the island the island game was terrible, mm. but it was terrible by design. I, Ireland really, Ireland knew England really really wanted to beat them after Euro eighty eight, mm. and England froze a little bit in the headlights. To be perfectly honest with you, and again Ireland were got themselves into a low block. But you got to understand that they they only that that was only a draw because. Um, there was a horrendous mistake by Steve McMahon just after coming on as a sub that lets the Irish in for the equaliser. Um, Ireland didn't offer much at all in that game. And England should have had a penalty as well, a fairly cut-and-dried penalty that would have put them 2-0 up. So it was a dreadful game. I wouldn't argue the point on that one. But the performance against Holland was was a... You know, if you want to talk about sliding doors moments, that's where... Robson brings in the sweeper system, which was his idea. It was never the players' idea, um, and the players have all, you know, said that story was absolute nonsense. Was this Mark Wright playing at sweeper? Was it? Yeah, yeah. And England were were another level to what they had been um, at Euro '88. They not only took on the Dutch on their own terms. England should have won that game. You know, they had two goals disallowed. We had couple of chances we're really unlucky on and that's the game that more so than the Czechoslovakia friendly at, at Wembley which was Gaza's real sort of that was his his real entrance into international football I know he scored against Albania but that was just a crazy cameo off the bench but that Czechoslovakia game he really was Gaza mm. but this was Gaza on the world stage and he he just absolutely loved that game. He was there's a really good moment where Rude Hullet is is trying to get by him and Gaza just goes straight through him and then snarls over the top of them because he's just <laughs> he's just got so much confidence. He's just so full of it. And, and did that come from Bobby and, believing in him? Did it? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Because Gaza is somebody who he needs to feel loved he yeah. needs to feel it, it's no surprise that obviously he plays brilliantly under Robson and he plays brilliantly under Venables and they're two managers who just adored him yeah they understood him not just adored him they understood him you know Robson was convinced that Gascoigne was going to win England USA 94 when he'd left the job he was utterly convinced of it yeah but that that Holland game is actually really good I know I it looks Yeah, I must be misremembering it then. But the the England performance was really really good. The the next game England actually win. Whew, that Egypt. was a dog of a game. That's that what was, I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, that was an absolute dog of a game. It really was. But all England had to do was get over the line, <laughs> and they did it. That's that's literally all that was required. Well, Egypt could still qualify because they'd done all right as well, hadn't they? Yeah. Um, it was the group was just unbelievably poised. I mean, hence the reason it had to go to lots. Mm. And 
it, it, that game is funny watching it back because in the course of doing this book I've watched nearly every England game from that period and let me tell you there were some bad games <laughs> <laughs> some really bad games um, that Egypt game really stands out because it, to be frank England are nervous you can see the nerves in them yeah. If they the thing is they drew nil nil with the Netherlands and they came off the pitch believing they should have won, but that belief sort of dissolved in the face of the fact they now had to win. There's a big difference in in the two, and yeah, they're nervous, but the the Mark Wright header goes in second half. They had a couple of nervy moments, but it really was just about getting over the line, and yeah. they just about did it. And then we get onto the Belgium game. Which is when all the fun starts to happen, doesn't it? Yeah. That again, though. <laughs> it didn't sound like it. <laughs> the fun of that game is winning in the absolute best possible way. Yes, that's right. That's what I mean. But England were poor. <laughs> they weren't good in that game. They, Belgium were really, really good. Enzo Schifo was an absolute genius. Yes, he was. And uh, England probably just about deserved to win it i would say but mm. they could have if that had been the other end and that had been shifo turning on a free kick and volleying it in <laughs> i don't think anyone could have had any complaints do you, you see being born in 1988 dave you mm. you won't have been aware of this but do you sort of as you're growing up is there a bit of still a bit of cultural rever- reverence from Italian 90 is it still echoing through your uh, formative years it is um, it's it's one of those things where I was trying to explain to my wife it must have been last year when you know when ITV showed all the Euro 96 games back on yeah and the whole arc from Gaza break on the scene at, at Italian 90 without knowing that him not getting on the end of that chance and, and extra time Euro 96 means absolutely nothing it's just like oh it's unlucky he didn't score but it could have been you know the absolute completion of the circle of him breaking on and obviously, you know, had the heartbreak against Germany and then him scoring that game in Euro 96 would have just, you know, it would have righted the world for me. When you look back at it like that, when you think of, you know, mm-hmm. the, you mentioned sliding doors and things like that, like that would have completed that sort of story. Um, and as it is, that that story never really got an ending that, that England would like. Certainly Gaza didn't. He obviously didn't go to any of the tournaments after that. So I think it's, it's part of like a almost a, a trilogy and uh, without knowing the first two parts you, you just kind of fully appreciate um, that whole moment yeah because that Belgian game Chris do you that was the moment that it the World Cup really took over the playgrounds wasn't it oh definitely yeah absolutely definitely um, I think it was um, Waddle and Hoddle that were dancing afterwards weren't they um, and um, sort of going up to the England fans I think Gaza did something similar as well but yeah that was when it really started to sort of mean something um, I was on holiday at the time I was definitely on holiday for the Cameroon game because I think our term ended a little bit differently because I didn't see the Cameroon game but that was a sort of again was, was that, was that was Lydica dives do you think for the penalties? Uh, I think he earned one of them. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't think he dived. I, but I think it's the, it's the very modern thing of looking for the contact and making sure you get it. Yeah, shall we say? But there, there again, that that's a that's a bizarre game of football because if Cameroon had just 
an ounce less naivety about them, they would have seen that game out no problem whatsoever, you know. Yeah. But the minute Gaza steps it up a gear, things start to change. And, yeah, again, like, the thing about Italian 90 that is difficult to explain to people is that you had the Holland game, which gave us Gaza, and suddenly everybody wants to be Gaza. <laughs> and then you've got the Belgian game that you win in the absolute best possible way. And then you play against Cameroon and it's a brilliant game and it's a 3-2 and it goes to extra time. And again, you win it in a really good way because you've come from behind. But you're also up against a team who've sort of really taken the tournament by storm mm. and who are like really front and centre of the cultural zeitgeist. And this like this run in Italia 90 is just mushrooming into something absolutely massive the the tv figures everybody knows about the tv figures for the semi-final but i think there was only about a million less watched that game so it's just it's just insanely popular it's just everywhere at this point and would you believe it the newspapers suddenly quite like bobby robson <laughs> i hate to say this because this is going to make me feel 100 years old but dave do you remember your dad talking about italia 90 I don't, only because my, my dad's not not a massive football fan, but um, Italian 90 is another one that's had so much coverage. I feel like I have watched it. Um, I think it was, was it yesterday or history, whatever it was, did a whole series about Italian 90 a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, which, you know, again, there's some absolutely brilliant um, programmes to put out around that, around the, around the tournament, around that sort of time. So, um, yeah, I mean, th- that Cameroon match, you, you feel like that was... A very Englandy performance, and that it, mm. it's, it's, it's type of match you thought you look at and think, ah, England will win that, and all of a sudden end up being behind, and then for once we actually, you know, came back and, and, and got through it, which isn't always the case with England. Certainly hasn't been over the years, so it's, you know, it's nice to hear that it's not always failure for us, but um, it's definitely a tournament where, if you speak to anyone probably of, of your ages, would say that it's the tournament that's made you fall in love with football, or you know. Maybe we yeah. reasserted your love of football. Oh, the whole World after. Cup, it would be fair to say, it was a pretty stinky World Cup yes. <laughs> in terms of quality. But the difference was, you had the high point if you're an England fan, but the high points of Italia 90 are really high points. So you've got Brazil versus Argentina in a knockout game. You've got Cameroon. You've got Baggio. You've got Scalacci. The rest of it, around those sort of really iconic stuff that everybody knows about, the rest of it genuinely was was dull as. It really was. The whole <laughs> tournament really was summed up by the final in the end. But it, it, because those high points were so high, that's why everybody just, you know, the minute they think about Italia 90 just has a, a great warming glow. Oh, <laughs> we've got to get on to the semi-final. I, re- I watched this on holiday in... France um, and I remember being really really excited the whole sort of day before and my dad being the cynical old man that I have now become sort of saying it's the Germans you're not going to beat them um, and <laughs> um, I remember sort of going into this bar and this bar was sort of completely full of England fans apart from these two Germans sat down the front and it was absolutely electric in this bar um, and I remember being excited about sort of two days before and the despair I felt afterwards I don't think I felt that in Euro 96 I don't think I've ever felt anything like the sort of despair I felt after that semi-final <laughs> yeah I my dad at the time was um, 
we were we were in the process of moving up to Huddersfield, where I now live, from Brighton, where I was born and raised. And my dad was uh, living in the house in Huddersfield we were going to move to um, once the school year was done. And we just got to the we were getting towards the summer holidays, etc. And I remember Dad phoning after the penalty shootout, and I I couldn't get a word out. I was just crying my <laughs> eyes out. I've never sobbed as hard about anything in my entire life. And I think the thing about that game is when I was was revisiting it for the book, I've not written thousands of words on that game because everybody knows the story. Everybody mm. knows what <laughs> happened. But when I was as when I went back to it, I think England were playing the best side in the world at the time mm. um that was borne out by them actually winning the world cup after that but you know we we know that the best side doesn't always win the world cup it's that's that's football but i think they genuinely were playing the best side in the world i think they gave they gave everything there was nobody in that team had anything left in the tank afterwards and they lost on the finest margin available and i think it was enough and a lot of people like to poke fun at England and say oh you you, you know you talk about a semi-final like it was a final but it, it really was a turning point for English football in lots of ways because it was the moment that there had been a lot of movement to start looking at the fan violence and start basically trying to take the game back mm. that was that was what it came down to and you had fan movements who are now trying to take the game back from the hooligans. And it, it, the thing about Italia 90 in that semi-final is it actually gave a lightning rod moment for people to pull around and say, well, look, you know, <laughs> that it, there's a, something on the pitch we can look at here as well, not just on the on the terraces. And the fact that the England fans basically behaved themselves despite the newspapers... Um, desperate for them to misbehave basically and the fact that everybody left the pitch with with their dignity um and robson had left with he'd restored basically pride in england and the england international team after euro 88 and that was a position that just nobody thought would happen Mm. and i think that like the mirror the daily mirror printed a headline after the third place playoff that when they were coming home they had the pictures on the front page of the bus going through milton keynes and the people on the streets and it just said it said we love you and bear in mind the mirror's coverage was basically some of the most vicious out there it really was pretty nasty the the turnaround was just absolutely extraordinary and that that made a lasting impact it made england matter again unfortunately the problem was the next manager in wasn't the right man <laughs> it would be fair to say and he ended up copying for for quite a bit himself but uh yeah is it, it the cultural significance of that single night's football really can't be overstated i remember suddenly suddenly england shirts were being worn again because you know simple things like that had been lost a little bit to the to violence and to the hooligans it wasn't the it wasn't the organized 
football factory Danny Dyer hooligans who were all drinking <laughs> in lacrosse and acrosputin. It was blokes in football shirts wrapped in flags trying to kick lumps out of people. That's what it was. So yeah, there was there was a feeling of reclamation and yeah, it it's a lot of people get misty eyed talking about Italia ninety. I see it for what it was, and I'm also acutely aware of the worst possible thing that could have happened for England was to win that World Cup. Uh, genuinely, it's the worst thing that could have happened because I think having a sort of tacit confirmation that England were the best in the world at football again would have been dreadful because I don't <laughs> think they would have enacted some of the changes that they did at that point. Um, but it was enough. You know, <laughs> gallant defeat was enough and it was what was needed. How do you think it would have played out had England played Argentina in the final with all the you know the history and the, and the narrative there? I mean that that would have been a bit of a, a storybook finishing, wouldn't it? Yeah, my take on that is tactically speaking, I think England would have set up actually quite nicely because Platt would have come in for Gascoigne from the start and would have probably done a job on uh, Maradona and would have basically just followed him around the pitch. And Argentina weren't great by any states. They really weren't great. And I think England would have probably niggled them a little bit. And he had a poor tournament as well, hadn't he, Maradona? Other than the Brazil yeah, game. Yeah, well, it, it had a better tournament than some people say. The problem was he hadn't had as good a tournament as 1986, and that really disappointed a lot of people. Yeah. But that, that summer of 1986 is the greatest tournament performance by a footballer I've ever seen in my life and I think will ever be seen I mean like it's not a Maradona podcast but <laughs> he to say he won that World Cup on his own would be way too harsh on some of his teammates but I tell you what it's not far off it's not <laughs> far off. and because he couldn't repeat that people went all oh, right he had a bad tournament but they forget about things like you know the through ball to Kinesia in the Brazil game is just yes otherworldly absolutely otherworldly um but yeah i i have a sneaking suspicion if england had got through they would have won that game but i'm absolutely certain it's the worst thing that could have happened um do you think that his legacy is um emboldened a little bit because we didn't win the world cup because like you say we're a nation of glorious losers aren't we so if we'd win the world cup would his reputation be a whole lot different than the sort of glorious loss that we had yeah yes and no i think i think in a funny sort of way dave is almost better placed to talk about this than me because he his reputation took a kicking while he was with england and while he left on a high there was still you can't just shake off six years of bad press which is what he'd had even though they'd turn around in that tournament, there was still a, a real feeling of the knives were out. They, they, put it this way, there's a reason he then spends the next few years of his career in Europe. Mm. And that's because, to be frank, he just didn't want to come back to England. But then as, as a Newcastle fan, Dave, he when he did come to Newcastle and he, te- he took that job, there was a sort of wave of sort of nostalgic euphoria around it wasn't there yeah i think as you say because he hadn't been in an english job before he came back 
Um, I think that probably had a lot to do with it. But I was going to ask you about this actually because, it, like, did you, as a as an England man, did you still follow Bobby's teams as he was, you know, he was yeah. Portugal and Holland and you know, Barcelona, yeah. where else he went? Were you following him actively? Yeah, I, I, as a sort of football obsessive. I was doing it in the only way you could, which was really like the, the deep in the bowels of CFAX, looking at <laughs> European results um, and reading World Soccer, um, and that was that was the way you could sort of follow his career. But what was what was very downplayed is obviously his his cancer troubles began in 1992, and I think people think that Bobby Robson got cancer at the end of his career, and that's not the case at all you know by the time he was managing Newcastle he had the plate in the top of his mouth where um you know a section of his mouth had had to be permanently removed um so his his actual will to work and his his desire to keep going was was quite extraordinary because after Newcastle he took the Republic of Ireland job and after the Republic of Ireland job until he got too sick um, to be able to physically work, he was doing a load of consultancy work for all sorts of people. Um, yeah, he, I think reputation-wise, I think the thing about Bobby Robson is he has two reputations, and that's one of an extremely good football manager who left a massive legacy in the game, but also just a, as a human being, he was just a, a, a an incredible human being to be able to endure what he did. And he wasn't perfect by any means, and he he made mistakes in his personal and his working life. But his endurance was just pretty incredible. Um, I asked Emma's too much to come on this podcast, but I did ask her about from a Barcelona point of view, um, and she did sort of send me WhatsApp and it says all you have to know from a Barcelona is view is that if you mention Bobby's name and people still smile, uh, that man is still revered in Barcelona to this day, and he always will be. He signed Ronaldo. Uh, that alone gives him legend status on top of everything else. So, like you're saying, still sort of warmly remembered. Um, Dave as a Newcastle fan because. I think did he take over after Hullet in the first game was the eight nil, wasn't it, against Sheffield Wednesday? Yeah, I mean he, there was a um he with a cup tie which he played which no one ever remembers, but yeah, the first league game was that was the eight nil with Sheffield. Um and we really, you know, hit the ground running. Um Hullet had fallen out with Shearer, which obviously well documented. Bobby Robson came in, bought Shearer back in, Shearer scores five against Sheffield. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't instant success. Um, and I think the rare thing here is that he was he was given we had th- you know three pretty average seasons really um, where we finished mid table and then the fourth season when we really really kicked on and, and got in the Champions League, um, which were you know brilliant brilliant times which we hadn't really seen since since uh, since Kevin Keane had departed. So um, they were probably my happiest years following following Newcastle. I was still very young when when Keegan was there, but I was you know fully tuned in for the, the Robson era and uh, I, you know I, I wouldn't I wouldn't swap it so my happiest memories are you know Bobby dancing on the touchline and we scored a winner at Allen Road in injury time to go top the league at Christmas in 2001 I think it was um, you know me- memories you'll, you'll not I'll probably not see in my lifetime again but um, I think if if I could pause one moment it, it would be um, the we, we had a Champions League qualifier against um Partizan Belgrade, which we lost on penalties, and that was the beginning of the end. And ever since then, you know, I think we'll turn this into the history of Newcastle United. And came Graham Souness, who dismantled the team. Um, and it's 
other than the odd fleeting season here and there, it's never really been as good since. So, um, yeah, that's it's 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 we had a lot of great memories, a lot of great Champions League nights under Bobby, but I feel like we were cut short of a couple of years of them towards the end because we made some ridiculous decisions following that Champions League game and like the season he got sacked we went in and he was on one year contract and Shepard said it wasn't it was going to be his last year and I think as soon as he did that all the young upstarts they, they didn't behave the way they should have done and from there it was you know lasted four or five games in the, in the next season yeah he talks a little bit about that and he, he I think I think he wanted to keep going but he knew it was it was an impossible job at that point and I <laughs> he was bloody minded you know, he he, endurance is a very underrated aspect of his personality, and he did leave Newcastle. Though, if you read his his various books, etc., he did read there leave there with a sense of fulfilment. At least he did feel like he, his work was not quite done, but he'd certainly improved things. And I think that's all he could sort of hope to do, really. And then, yeah, you know, he was. He's been vindicated by what came next, hasn't he? <laughs> Did you um, speak to his family at all, David? Uh, I, well, I wanted to do this book a certain way, and the the first way I um, approached it was I was going to interview all these people and get loads and loads of stuff. I started planning the book out, and I realised that there was just such a ridiculously immense amount of ground to cover um that there was just no point because i wanted to tell the story and i was going to be speaking to people and i might have literally only had the space of the room to use 50 words mm. <laughs> you know so the plan was right the plan then changed to i'm going to tell this story i'm going to do get do all the newspaper research etc and then i'm going to send it to bobby robson's family for approval and make sure they're happy with it and the publisher slightly jumped the gun and the family found out about it literally before I'd had a chance to send it to them. But fortunately, I know Liz Luff very well, who um, is is a figure with the Bobby Robson Foundation and who knows the family very well. And they were extremely nervous about this book because they have had a bad experience on another book which i won't i won't go into but they'd had a bad experience and liz was honest with me and she said look i'm going to send this to mark bobby's son um he's going to read it and get back to me but i I don't want to i don't want to damage our relationship or what have you because we we did the portrait of the icon book for the bobby robson foundation we raised them a lot of money but mark read it and got back to us and said um he really loved it Oh, really, fabulous. really loved it. And I had taken the time to basically mark a couple of places that he might want to read carefully, which was essentially the stuff around the, the mistresses mm. and the stuff that came out in the papers. Um, and it came back without a single note on it. Uh, so I was I was really I was really pleased with that. <laughs> yeah. To say the least. Oh, I was yeah. really, really pleased with that. Um and they they've been really supportive. They've tweeted about it a couple of times and hopefully we've got a couple of things lined up in the future when the whole world hasn't got a cough. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it it's it's a funny time to be launching a book because it's it's we've not got any 
shop support or anything like that and mm. obviously i have a publishing company as many people know this isn't going through my publishing company because i i did not want to deal with the hassle of my own book to be <laughs> frank i wanted to i wanted to be a little bit divorced from it which is has been great but yeah to have that feedback from from mark and from liz who read some and said she really enjoyed it and i've had a couple of other people who've read it early i got very nice email from rob smythe at the weekend which was which was good but you got to understand this book has been sort of about 12 years in the making oh really <laughs> because, okay yeah when i when i was still working in the motor trade i i left i got made redundant and i decided to do uh, an english degree via the open university because i wanted to to write something about bobby robson but i wasn't equipped at the time i mean i was i was a mechanic essentially um so i i collected various things over the years read every book i could had i've got all sorts of stuff research wise so i'd know i'd not written a word but i i was on the path for years and years of working out how i was going to do these book and things i wanted to say and then like covid comes and lockdown comes and it was like right i've got a i i needed somewhere after the homeschooling to to feel like myself for a bit mm. so i i spoke to the good people at gale um who lent me access to their newspaper archives and i literally just read i think i read about i think i read something like full 40 odd books for it and i read about 1600 articles from the direct from the 80s um around robson and the england team and, and everyone else and i i it is comprehensive <laughs> it is there's there's a lot in there um it, there's just so much that happened in that decade because we've talked about bobby robson on this podcast and the book is silver linings bobby robson's england but it's also about the football violence and it's about paul gascoigne and it's about diego maradona and it's about gary lineker and mm. it's about england at the time and it's just yeah it's it's a it's a journey through english football in the 80s and that's that's not always a nice place to be but you don't have to be of a particular age to to read it i guess this is a, a sort of no no i think I, I, somebody somebody else who has very little um knowledge of the period other than the headlines so yeah. diego maradona awful at euro 88 and then italia 90 read through it um, and got back to me and said they just couldn't believe it had been like it was. <laughs> and that is, honestly, it, going back and reading through the newspapers, etc., it, it, it's, it is otherworldly, mm. absolutely otherworldly. And, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun to write. It was heartbreaking to write at times. It was tough to write at times, but... Yeah, I, I hope people in, I hope people enjoy it. You know, I'm I'm very nervous about getting it out there because I'm very nervous about my own stuff. But yeah, it, it's it was a, a journey through my life as well. No, <laughs> in a sort of way. I can well imagine. So again, go on, what, tell us what it's called before we uh, we sign off. It's called Silver Linings, Bobby Robson's England, and we've just moved up the publication date because it was it was going to come out on June the sixth which is precisely a week before the euro start i think yeah um but basically the the shops are still shut 
we lots of people have ordered via Amazon and, and then Waterstones uh, bizarrely started sending copies out out the blue to people who had pre-ordered it so we thought well we may as well go ahead and launch so we picked the first time pitch could do it so it's you've got mike calvin's new book the week before and then mine the after from from pitch but you can go and order it on amazon and from all the usuals if you if you sneak one in at waterstones you may actually get the book straight away so you're um mike calvin is your support act then yeah he's warming warming the crowd up <laughs> brilliant dave have you got uh, anything else you want to ask david uh, no, I was just going to mention uh, mention Liz there, who you say works a lot with the the foundation. Uh, I only met Liz once, and it was at a um, it was a quiz for we were raising money for someone. Come out, it was now when Liz did a round on to Bobby, and uh, we actually spoke afterwards and said, "Wait, did you ever meet him?" She said, oh, "I met him loads of times, of course." I said, "Well, what was he like?" And by the time she finished telling us, she was in floods of tears. So I always felt yeah. a bit guilty, but honestly, one of the world's nicest people. So. Yeah, and she she is um, she's almost acts as a sort of guardian for the Robson family because she loves them. She genuinely loves them all, and she loves the foundation. She does an absolutely fabulous job for them, and her her approval was just as big as Mark's. Mm. To be perfectly honest with you, um, we we did the portrait of the icon book, and she she helped us along the way, but. I think she was slightly sceptical about how much money it would raise, and then in the end we raised them thirty-six grand, I think it was. So she was she was over the moon with that, and uh, yeah, that that's no surprise. She was in floods of tears. <laughs> Leave me. Excellent, right? We'll get you to uh, whatever socials you've got. So, uh, day first of all, I'll go with yourself. Um, how do they uh, follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at David Hartrick. I will forewarn you though that part of my day job is to cover Huddersfield Town even though I'm a Brighton Hove Albion fan so my Twitter feed is often a weird mix of England stuff highly specific Huddersfield Town stuff and then a load of me crying about Brighton's latest failure <laughs> okay uh, Dave how are they follow you uh, so on Twitter I am at CM9798 Okay, uh, and we are Man of the Post as part of the At Man of the Post uh, network. So, Dave, you do your Sunday show. So, I'll be here previewing the um, uh, the forthcoming Premier League games uh, later on this week. And you'll be back next week, I guess, to review what we've been previewing. Yes, that's the plan. Excellent. Uh, so, you can follow us on um, AK, uh, on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Man of the Post. You can like us on Facebook as well. Uh, you can. Subscribe to us on Spotify, uh, iTunes, or on Acast, and all your future uh, episodes will fall automatically into your inbox. Gentlemen, um, it has been an absolute education, um, and really, really appreciate you coming on, David, to tell us about this book. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. And always remember to keep your man on the post. Mm-hmm.